Welcome to Management Matters, a National Academy of Public Administration podcast where policy meets practice. I'm Terry Gurton, president of the Academy. On a biennial basis, the Academy awards the Elliot Richardson Prize to individuals possessing the public service virtues exemplified by Elliot Richardson, an Academy Fellow. Mr. Richardson was an exceptional public servant and one of only two individuals in our nation's history to serve in four cabinet-level positions in the U.S. government. The virtual awards ceremony will be this Wednesday, February 16th, at 7 o'clock Eastern Time, when we'll present the award to Drs. Francis Collins and Anthony Fauci. You'll want to listen next week as we share their conversation about their careers and the importance of public health as a practice of public administration. In today's episode, we'll explore the history of the prize itself and of Elliot Richardson's remarkable career with two guests who know both topics well. Joe Kasputis is a co-chair of the prize selection committee and Michael Rogers chairs the prize committee for the Academy. Thank you both for joining me on the podcast today. Joe, there's a short description of Elliot Richardson in the intro, but can you tell us a little bit more about Mr. Richardson and his impact on public administration? Terry, I'd be very happy to do that. There's so much to tell about Elliot. Many may wonder why we have this prize. Elliot was a truly unique public servant. I think what distinguished him were three characteristics. First of all, he cared passionately about public service. He pursued public service, but importantly, he viewed it as an opportunity to do something useful in the public interest. He wasn't just looking to hold jobs and punch tickets. He really wanted to do some good for the public in every job he tackled. So it was, it was a passion with him to make something happen that would help people and help the country. Secondly, he turned out to be a very able administrator. So when you combine that passion for getting things done with his skill as an administrator, he really was able to make an impact. Indeed, uh, President Nixon at one point remarked that he was the best manager in his entire cabinet, which is maybe one of the reasons why Nixon moved him around so much from from job to job where he needed a utility infield. And And the third thing was he was very inspirational for anybody who came in contact with him, and certainly for anybody who worked for him. When President Clinton, a president, one of whom Elliot did not work for, he worked for six other presidents, but not Clinton. Clinton gave them the Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest civilian award in 1998. He said uh, that when he made the award, no public servant is more beloved by those who have served him. And no public servant has shown greater respect for the Constitution he has served. I might add that Clinton also remarked that Eliot averted a constitutional crisis the night of the Saturday Night Massacre through his moral clarity and through his courage, which are other characteristics of Eliot. So every job he, he had really brought something unique to all these characteristics and got a lot done. I suppose people are familiar with his career, Terry, and I could go on about it, but uh, it's quite extraordinary. He's one of only two people to have actually served in four cabinet-level positions. So tell us a little bit about how that came to be. Well, I think if you go back a little ways, 
and think about Elliot. He he had a passion for public service, and he took a lot of jobs to, to do it, going all the way back to World War II. He was an Army medical officer in World War II. He was in the Normandy invasion. He was awarded two Purple Hearts, and he was awarded the Bronze Star for his heroism and under fire. He came out of that, went to the Harvard Law School, clerked for Judge Learned Hand in the Appeals Court for a year, clerked for Felix Frankfurter for a year on the Supreme Court, and then he worked for Senator Saltonstall in the Congress. So he actually worked in the judiciary, in the Congress, and of course, in the administration. Because he was so able, he was sought after. But he was also able to win elected office. He ran for the position of lieutenant governor in Massachusetts and won. He served there for two years. He ran for the position of state attorney general for Massachusetts and won that and served that for two years. Uh, Actually, before that, he was appointed by Eisenhower as the uh, district attorney for Massachusetts. So he had a lot of experience at the state level. And when Nixon brought him to Washington, right after he was elected, he put him in as the undersecretary of state. Now, Elliot had been in Washington before. For a time, he served as assistant secretary of HEW for legislative affairs. So he did that, too. So it was not a surprise that when Nixon needed a secretary of HEW, he reached out to his undersecretary of state and moved Elliot over to HEW, where Elliot served with distinction for about two and a half years. Then he uh, briefly went to DOD as the Secretary of Defense. He knew something about defense issues because when he worked for Saltonstall, Saltonstall was the chairman of, of the Senate Armed Services Committee. So Elliot knew quite a bit about DOD, but he didn't stay there long. He got moved to be the Attorney General of the United States, which is, I think, the position he really wanted to have. Uh, Who knew when Nixon put him in that position that some five months later, on October 20th, 1973, he would would resign by refusing to obey the president's order to fire Archibald Cox, who was then the special prosecutor investigating the Watergate issue. Nixon is quoted as saying that, I think Brezhnev is laughing at me because I'm being bullied by a member of my cabinet, i.e., Elliot Richardson and the special prosecutor. And when that request came along, of course, they were getting very close to Nixon then. Uh, He had been ordered by the court and the administration failed in its appeal to turn over the Oval Office tapes to the special prosecutor. Of course, that ultimately did happen, and that was Nixon's undoing. But Elliot resigned rather than follow uh, Nixon's order. And Nixon went then to the deputy attorney general, Bill Ruckel's house, who also resigned. And then Nixon went to the solicitor general, who was the third person in line at the Justice Department, Robert Bork, who did follow Nixon's order. And indeed, it's little known, but uh, Elliot encouraged Bork to stay on because he felt continuity in the Justice Department was important. So, so there you have it that uh, he had all of those jobs. Uh, He then went off and wrote a book (laughs) because he was out of a job. But that wasn't too long because then he was uh, tapped to be the ambassador to Great Britain. And uh, before long, President Ford brought him back to be the the secretary of commerce, which is when I started working with him. So I 
had worked with him for the, the last 25 years or so of his career, but only when he became the Secretary of Commerce. I should say he had an entourage of very capable people who followed him from cabinet department to cabinet department, especially Dick Darman and J.T. Smith. Dick Darman passed away, but J.T. is uh, the co uh, chair of the nominating committee for the prize. And uh, when uh, I knew Elliot Richardson was coming to the Commerce Department, I was assistant secretary there for policy and administration. I thought I'd be out on the street in a minute because I knew he had all his own people, but he wanted me to stay, and I'm very glad he did. Joe, it is a remarkable career as you give us the highlights, and you talked about Elliot's characteristics of his passion to get things done for the public and his ability as a public manager and his ability to inspire those who worked for him. What can current public administrators today learn from his career? Well, I think if they could exhibit some of those characteristics, it would be a good thing of passion for outcomes in the public interest. Uh, Maybe Elliot has some lessons for them because he said in the in the book that he wrote in 1996, Reflections of a Radical Moderate, he thought he was a radical moderate because he was in the Republican Party and he was a moderate, which was then, he thought, radical for the Republican Party. But he said politicians and government can't solve problems by building groups who insist on being told what they want to hear. I think that comment is very applicable right now to the uh, polarization we see among the the parties in in Washington. We need to be objective. And he was dedicated to objective analysis. When he tackled a problem, he gathered up people who knew something about it, brought them in, listened to them, analyzed their advice, thought about it, decided what was the right thing to do. And then he proceeded with great courage and great moral integrity to go forth and do it. I can remember how diverse he was in that. When he came to the Commerce Department, he formed an advisory board of some 20 people from all walks of life, not only CEOs of huge corporations, but scientists and healthcare experts and Reverend Jesse Jackson. So uh, there's an example of how we would would listen to everybody and try to come up with a sensible course of action. And he was determined to try to see it through. He had the moral courage and integrity to do that. I think we can all take a lot of lessons from that when we serve in the public interest or when we serve as individuals trying to help our government in every way we can. Thank you for that. I love that response. Um, Michael, I want to turn to you because the Elliot Richardson Prize was established to recognize public servants who exemplify those characteristics of Elliot. Can you tell us a little bit about how the committee goes through the process and what kinds of criteria you're looking for in the candidates as you go to make this award? Sure, Terry. The committee looks far and wide from those who've been in government and served in high-level positions who exhibited uh, excellence and integrity and passion for results and getting things done for the people. We are working with the nominating committee. We sit around the table and we we talk about a, a, a bunch of names that come up and sort through and we end up selecting the best two. It's now two. We thought it out being one, 
but we do two awards now when, when we do it, who best represent the notion of bipartisanship, working across the aisle to get things done for the people. We, we look at how they are regarded by, uh, by their colleagues all across the government. And we, we've always ended up, I think, with a host of nominees that everyone would agree. That's the example of a stellar public servant. And I don't think we failed at all in that, in, in that regard. You know, the, the Richardson Prize Fund was started in 1999 by a group of admirers and friends of uh, Elliot Richardson, along with the Hitachi LTD and the Hitachi Foundation. And you can tell that Richardson was, a, was, was the, the kind of person that people admired. You heard Joe talk about his relationship with him and J.T., Smith also, who followed him around, you know, in a number of positions, you know, they, they just admired the man and what he stood for. And that's an example of the kind of public servant that should be held up and regarded and honored so that people can see this is what a stellar public servant looks like. And our nominees, our honorees rather, over the years, last year we had Governor Jerry Brown. And certainly he, he stood the test of time over a number of years, going from governor to attorney general, then, then to mayor and back to governor in, in California and doing some amazing, uh, some amazing work. And we've honored uh, Leon Panetta and Sylvia Matthews Burwell in 17 and John Koskin at the IRS in 2016. And uh, you heard Joe uh, mention William Ruckel's house. He was back during that period with Elliot Ritz, Richardson. We not we uh, honored him in 2016, and Sheila Blair and and Paul Volcker, and Robert Gates, the Secretary of Defense in 2012, and James Baker and uh, George Mitchell in 2010. And that was an exciting discussion between those two giants in public service who served the country so well and worked well with each other, though, in different parties. We try to identify people who work across the lines, who understand that getting things done in government for the people is far more important than just sticking to one party's line of, of doing things. And there are people there, and hopefully through the Elliott Richardson Prize Fund and through us holding his name up and his example up year every two years, we will find others out there who will latch on to this aspiration to be an exemplar in public service and do the work that needs to be done. I think your last point is so important because these kinds of awards are not only recognition for the awardees, and, and obviously the ones that you've just listed, they are very worthy of award, but there's also this aspect of inspiration to them, right? That's what you're saying, that the committee's hope is that this award doesn't just serve as a recognition for accomplishments on one individual's behalf, but it's a message of inspiration. Absolutely. You know, further down the list, I think Colin Powell was in 2002 was the first one, you know, what a name, you know, in terms of everyone, that's something everyone can agree to. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman uh, to serve on the Supreme Court. 
another great name. And Tom King, the Republican governor of New Jersey, who, who was certainly um, a, a great public, public servant. So being that example, looking at these people in their career and what they contributed should inspire those in public service to be the best that they can be. Joe, talking about inspiration, we've got two pretty inspirational awardees this year, Dr. Francis Collins and Dr. Anthony Fauci. Tell us how the committee identified them and why they were your nominees for the award this year. Well, they fit very well with the criteria that that Michael has just described. We were always been looking for people who have been inspirational leaders and try very hard to get significant things done. And we look for those who have had long career of dedication to public service. And we, we look for those who do have courage and integrity and are thoughtful and generous in spirit. And I think once again, we've rang the bell with the two awardees we have teed up for this year. Let me start with Dr. Collins. Dr. Francis Collins has had a 28-year career at the National Institutes of Health, starting out as being the head of the uh, Human Genome Project. And, you know, he's much more than a than just a manager. Not that there's, there's nothing wrong with being just a manager as long as you're good at it. But if you're a manager and you have additional intellectual contributions to make, like Dr. Collins does, it's really great. He's a scientist. He's been the leader in the investigation of mapping the human genome and in international coordination of that very complicated task and the leading to solutions to uh, diseases, particularly those that are hereditary diseases through, through that work. And after doing that for about 16 years, he was asked to be the director of the entire National Institutes of Health. And I think he has led that organization in an outstanding fashion. When you think about it, the, the budget has ranged between about 35 to 45 billion a year, growing every year. And, and that's a lot of money to be handing out. And there's a lot of potential for dissent and controversy and things of that sort. And I think the organization is extremely effective, and that's in large measure to his leadership over that period of time. So he certainly fits the criteria of somebody who's dedicated to the public service, done a lot of good, and has done it for a long time with lots of moral courage. Dr. Fauci probably needs a a little introduction to any audience in America today. He's had a lot of bricks thrown at him by different people, but he steadfastly uh, holds to his beliefs as to what the science is saying and, and what we should do. And uh, there's been criticism of both Collins and Fauci that they changed their minds, but of course they do. The science is constantly changing and they take the latest evidence and evaluate it and transmit it to the public in as effective a way as, as they can. And Dr. Fauci has done so many wonderful things in the past. He's been very key in taming HIV, a terrible disease that ravaged the, the country and, and, and many other countries around the world. He's been key with SARS, with the swine flu, with Ebola. I mean, there's been epidemic after epidemic that he's been right on the point on. And COVID is no different. But the challenges he has faced, uh, particularly in 
two different administrations with somewhat different philosophies has has been huge. And I think he's conducted himself in a magnificent fashion. And uh, he's had an equally long career. He's he's been serving the government for nearly 50 years. He's served seven, six or seven presidents, just like Elliot Richardson did. So I think we've got some great people to honor. And the whole point of this award is to recognize those people who do this so that others can emulate it. And it's not just Elliot Richardson. We want him to be remembered because he was truly unique. But there's lots of other unique people in public life that are doing the same thing. And there needs to be more like Collins, like Fauci, like Elliot, and like all the other honorees that uh, Michael mentioned. Oh, thank you for that great summary. And Michael, I want to turn to you because Joe's just laid out a proposition that there are lots of great future candidates here, people who are exhibiting moral courage and great leadership and inspirational leadership. You mentioned earlier about our polarized national conversation. As you think about chairing this committee for the future and you look out there, do you see uh, future candidates, people who are really crossing the aisle to do this kind of important work on behalf of the American people? I, I, I'm sure that there are, there are people there that are working quietly across party lines to get things done. I, I think that even when it seems to be that one party is, is in control of, of the conversation, there still has to be dialogue to get support. So there are people there. And I think the committee will have to throw a very wide net in the future, Joe, to kind of find those people who have been standing there in the face of a very difficult conversation and kept saying, we need to talk across the aisles. We need to find a common solution and not fall into the polarized dialogue. It takes courage. It takes courage to do that. So we're going to be looking for those public servants who have the courage to stand up in the face of opposition and tell the truth about what is going on and try to find the solution for the problems that we face in this country. You all have looked not only at the federal level, you've looked across branches at the federal level, but you've also recognized, as you mentioned with Jerry Brown, folks who've done this at the state level, right? Yes, yes. So, Joe, any final thoughts that you want to leave us with about Elliot and his important legacy? Well, I have two. Just to follow up on the point that Michael was making, I think it's gotten tougher to find people with the characteristics of Elliot Richardson with the polarization that exists between the parties. And, you know, a lot of what Elliot predicted in, in 1996 in his book, people only wanting to listen to things that they want to hear, has happened just far too much. So I do think it's gotten tougher and we need to change that. The second thing is, I just want to reflect on the fact that Elliot, as an individual, had a lot of impact. He felt it was very important for individuals to take responsibility for participating in government. And he certainly was exemplary in that. We didn't mention that he was a Napa fellow. He was a founder and a trustee of the Council for Excellence in Government, which actually spawned the prize originally. He was the chairman of the United Nations Association of the United States of America. He was very committed to the UN. 
And in fact, one job we didn't mention is that he accepted the role from uh, Jimmy Carter to be the ambassador plenipotentiary and extraordinary to the United Nations Third Conference on the Law of the Sea, which he considered to be the toughest job that he ever held because it had more nations in it than the United Nations had. And they were trying to get everybody lined up on some very tough issues about who controls seabed resources and navigation and coastal rights and so forth. And ironically, he worked so hard at it, the United States never joined the convention results. But he kept trying. He kept trying as an individual, along with serving in these wonderful positions. He also wrote a wonderful book while he was at the Council for Excellence in Government on ethics and government for public servants. And it, it should be must reading for everybody. This was a remarkable life. Um, and I want to thank both of you for the work that you've done to perpetuate both his legacy through this prize, but also the impact that the prize has on the community of public administrators writ large, folks who are serving the country and their fellow citizens at every level. And thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I'm looking forward to seeing you Wednesday night at the event itself. We hope all of our listeners will tune in and join us there as well. Well, many thanks to you, Terry, and to Napa for all you've done to make the prizes continue to be a success. Thank you, Terry. I enjoyed the conversation. Great to talk about and look forward to the presentation on the 16th. Thank you so much. For our listeners, check back every Monday for a new episode from the Academy as we work to build a just, fair, and inclusive government that strengthens communities and protects democracy.